You already know my name. You've already seen my ridiculous three-piece suit. So let's get this show rolling. Um, I'm here to introduce the, the keynote uh, for today, uh, which will be delivered by Senator Tim Kaine, um, senator from Virginia. And he'll be uh, uh, moderated, or his question and answers will be moderated by Alex Ward of Politico. Um, senator Tim Kaine, it's not his first time at Cato talking about uh, war powers. He was here, and I think it was we were just talking 2015, if memory serves, uh, about the war powers regarding the war on ISIS. Um, senator Kane is, as I mentioned, the Democratic senator from Virginia. A um, little bit by way of background, he has a BA from the University of Missouri and a JD from Harvard Law. He was elected uh, to the Richmond City Council and became mayor of Richmond from 98 to 01, lieutenant governor of Virginia from 02 to 06, governor of Virginia from 6 to 10, chair of the DNC from 9 to 11, and a vice presidential candidate for uh, Senator Hillary Clinton in the 2016 campaign. He's been the senator from Virginia since 2012. Um, and I think it's important to point out a couple of his credentials to talk about this. Um, senator Kane, as I mentioned, had talked about um, the lack of authority, really, for the war against ISIS from a legal point of view. Um, and he's known for his expertise on the constitutional powers of the presidency. And that's what brings him here today. Senator Kane's talked about his frustration over the sloppiness of the process and the communication in this country over decisions of war. And he noted that presidents tend to overreach, and Congress sometimes willingly ducks tough votes and decisions. He said, we all have to do better. And I think this is a perfect way to, to a perfect time, rather, uh, to commemorate those efforts as we see the effort to repeal um, the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs um, really getting legs under it right now. Um, as I mentioned, Alex Ward of Politico uh, will be his interlocutor. He's a national security reporter and the uh, proprietor of the must-read NatSec Daily, National Security Daily newsletter uh, from Politico. Prior to joining Politico, he was the White House and national security reporter at Vox. Um, and he was also an associate director in the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center, where he worked on military issues and US foreign policy. And he is the author of a cryptically not yet named forthcoming book on the Biden administration's foreign policy, which will be out next year. Uh, but with that out of the way, I'd like to turn the podium over to Senator Kane. Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate having you here. Thank you. Good, good afternoon to everyone. It's, uh, it's great to be back at Cato, uh, and it is sort of emblematic of how difficult this issue is that I was basically here eight years ago talking about the same issue. Um, this issue of, of wanting Congress to take its Article I responsibilities over war, peace, and diplomacy more seriously. Um, we are on the verge of doing something that the Senate has not done since 1971, have a vote to repeal a war authorization. The last time the Senate did it was 1971 to repeal the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, and it wasn't a full-fledged debate with the focus just on that. The vote was on an amendment to the Foreign Military Sales Act where the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was repealed. The last time that the Senate has had a standalone debate on just a single war repeal is like maybe never or never during my lifetime, but we took a step toward that today. We just had a vote on the floor of the Senate, and the vote was 68 to 27 to move on to the bill. Two yes votes were absent today, so we have 70 votes to repeal at this 20th anniversary of the Iraq, the Iraq War authorizations, both Gulf War and, and 2002. Um, let me thank Cato for support. Cato has offered sort of intellectual support on this effort along the way. Uh, Todd Young, my colleague in the Senate, wished he could be here, but he had something back in Indiana. I get 
I, I live closer, so I don't have to race quite so much after the last vote of the day. L let me tell you how I got focused on this, um, and then let me tell you why it's so important that we undertake this effort, and then what the, under, what the undertaking might mean down the road with respect to more broadly questions about war powers. It was in 2002, in October of 2002, I was the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. I had no idea that I would ever run for, much less be in the United States Senate. I had no idea that my then 12-year-old oldest child would end up becoming a Marine uh, Infantry Officer. But I was listening on National Public Radio to the debate about whether we should go to war with Iraq, whether we should pass the authorization that passed in October of 2002. I, I assumed that everyone had a lot more knowledge than I did, so I felt like you know, I didn't necessarily have a clear sense of what should happen. But one thing really struck me, and that was it troubled me greatly, and only one senator was bringing this up, Robert Byrd, it troubled me greatly that the debate about the Iraq war was happening right before a midterm election. No one could explain why October mattered at all. As you'll remember, the invasion didn't happen until March 19. So what was it about October that meant that this war authorization vote had to take place? And it seemed to me that the politics of the midterm election was a dominant, possibly the dominant feature in that debate and vote. And that worried me greatly. So I became sort of obsessed with the question at that point of, wow, there's got to be a better way to do this, to take questions of war more seriously. Started to read about it, again, never knowing I would have an opportunity to do anything. But when Jim Webb, Virginia's senior senator, decided in the middle of his first term that he didn't want to run for reelection, I got into the race, won the seat, asked to be on the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees so that I could try to make sense and then hopefully convince some of my colleagues that Congress needed to take our own powers, war, peace, and diplomacy more seriously and not just abdicate them to executives. Um, executives do overreach in this space. There's a great history of it. There's a wonderful um, scene in the first act of Henry V where there's a, a comical, sort of sarcastic discussion about why executives often go to war and often go to war to distract people's attention from things that they, they don't want them to pay attention to. But, but I don't really blame executives for that. That's sort of what executives do. I, I really blame Congress. I blame Congresses of both parties, under presidents of both parties, for progressively abdicating on this responsibility. And it's not only a responsibility with respect to war and peace, even diplomacy. President Obama, and I was a strong Obama supporter, was negotiating the JCPOA with Iran, which I also supported, but he thought he could do it without Congress. And I wrote a bill with Bob Corker to force him to bring the deal to Congress because he was using congressional sanctions as the negotiating chip. And I said, if you're going to use our sanctions as your negotiating chip, then you can't do a deal without bringing it back to us. Why is it so important at 20 years? You've just had a discussion looking at lessons learned, mistakes made. There, there's so many lessons learned. Why is it important at 20 years to repeal these two authorizations? I think there's four reasons, and then I want to talk about down the road what more we would still need to do. First, we got to acknowledge the reality that Iraq is not an enemy. They're a strategic partner. We have two war authorizations against a nation that just like last week, Secretary Austin visited, had a, had a really productive set of meetings and press conference with Prime Minister al-Sudani to talk about the need for U.S. and Iraq cooperation to continue to 
to feed ISIS or other non-state terrorist organizations that, that jeopardize Iraq and other nearby nations, but also to provide a check against Iranian aggression in the region. We have about 2,500 troops in Iraq at Iraq's invitation, and Prime Minister al-Sadani wants us to work together. Iraq has become a force not of chaos, but a force of regional stability, that, that, and they're getting better and better at that. And so we shouldn't have a war authorization against a nation that's now a strategic partner. Iran uses the authorizations to tell Iraq they're not really your friends, they're pretending to be your friends, but if they were your friends, they wouldn't have war authorizations against you. The Iraqi Prime Minister, the Iraqi Foreign Minister, the Iraqi Ambassador to the United States have all said that the repeal of these outdated authorizations would be a positive message about a U.S. and Iraqi partnership. So that's the first reason. Let's just recognize the reality that Iraq is no longer an enemy, but is now a, a partner. Second, we expect so much of our troops. Um, my oldest son was a Marine Infantry Commander for eight years who had a couple of deployments. We asked them to do hard things, to risk their lives, you know, bear, bear the burdens of war, see friends that have borne the burdens of war, and they do that. Um, we ought to own our responsibilities. If we're going to ask the troops to bear the really tough burden, then we ought to own our responsibility to not allow wars without votes of Congress, to not hide because war votes are tough, to exercise oversight during wars and ask tough questions. And some of the lessons of the last 20 years are also about oversight or the lack thereof, and I'm sure you talked about that on your panels, but also to declare when wars are over. Um, that is a congressional responsibility, and if we're going to ask our troops to shoulder the more difficult burden, then we shouldn't shirk the easier burden because these are politically difficult discussions. Um, third, we should repeal authorizations, the, the two Iraq authorizations in this case, because an authorization that sits on the books, I call it a zombie authorization, when the purpose has long since been satisfied, is an opportunity for mischief. We want presidents, if they're going to start wars, to come to Congress and ask permission as the framers intended in Article I. But if, if there are uh, authorizations on the books that were passed for another purpose but are not repealed, you find presidents getting pretty darn creative. Instead of coming to Congress, they'll say, well, look, Congress already gave me authority. Why don't I use it? Three presidents, actually four, Presidents Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden, have used the 9-11 authorization, which is short open-ended, no clear definition of the enemy, no clear definition of geography, no temporal limitation. Four presidents have used that authorization, yes, to target terrorist groups, but often terrorist groups that didn't even exist at the time of 9-11, terrorist groups that may have hostile intent toward nations we like, but have no hostile intent toward the United States. And even those of us who believe that the 9-11 authorization has a continuing utility that needs to be possibly shaped a little bit, we all would acknowledge, everyone would acknowledge, that the 9-11 authorization has been used in places and against organizations that Congress never would have intended, never would have intended in 2001. So a zombie authorization out on the books that has outlived its life can be an occasion for abuse. The Iraq authorization. President Trump used the 2002 authorization to warrant striking Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, in, in Iraq. Now, Nobody was mad that Soleimani, who did so much damage to U.S. and others over the years, uh, was, was found and targeted and removed. People weren't upset about that. But to say that 
an authorization authorizing war against Iraq was a legal justification for striking and killing uh, an Iranian military leader because he happened to be in Iraq is completely specious. And yet that's what can happen when authorizations sit on the books past the point at which they were necessary. So that's the third reason that we want to remove authorizations, to avoid a president feeling like I can just grab onto this, assert this as a justification legally without coming to Congress to getting and getting a, a, real, a real legal authority for military action with the debate that the American public can see and understand what's at stake. Finally, the last reason to do this, I think, is a, is a powerful one. The U.S., we're so amazing in so many ways. We're not perfect, obviously, but we're an amazing nation in so many ways. Here's something I love about our country. We can turn an enemy into a friend. That's not that easy. There's a you know, biblical phrase in the book of Isaiah to beat a sword into plowshare, to turn a, a spear into a, a pruning hook. The U.S. has proven an ability, as have other nations, in, in, in communication and in relationship with the United States to turn an enemy into a friend. We waged two wars against Germany in the 20th century. They're a super close ally now, and they're helping us defend Ukraine against an illegal invasion by Russia. Japan, we were at war with Japan. They're a very close ally right now. And this, and Vietnam. Vietnam, we, we are not partners and allies in the way Germany and Japan, but that relationship has gotten closer and closer. And now Vietnam requests port visits by the USS John McCain. They want the USS John McCain to visit Vietnam to show the US and Vietnam are partners, which ha has a way of helping them as they check off against Chinese aggression. So we have adversaries today in the world, and they're watching what we do. And it's not bad for them to see us repeal an authorization and say, Iraq, you were an enemy, but now Iraq and the United States are partners. We're strategic partners. There is no permanent enemy of the United States, and we have a capacity and a desire. It's a magnanimity, a magnanimity that's shared by other nations, to take a hostile relationship and yet look for a chapter where it can be a good relationship. So these are the reasons why we need to repeal the authorization. Here's what's going to happen, and then I'll just give one other thing down the road, and then Alex and I will converse, and I'd love to take your questions. Um, the vote today was the cloture vote, and I'm sure you're all like super Senate procedure geeks, right? So this is the vote to allow a debate. So it's, you, need, you need 60 votes under current Senate rules to allow a bill to come to the floor for full debate. We got 68, and we had two others who were absent today. So we have 70 votes on this, which is quite bipartisan. This sets up the actual floor debate and amendment process next week. Uh, the, the Democratic and Republican leadership are negotiating with members about Amendments, and there ought to be amendments. This is a serious thing. It, should, it shouldn't be rushed. I'm glad that it's getting its, its time where it's the only item on the docket and we can really spend time on it. I think you'll see probably two kinds of amendments offered. Some will be focused upon the continuing threat from Iran-backed militias in Iraq. And we're working with Iraq to deal with that threat. But some will want to make plain that by withdrawing an authorization for against Iraq, we're not hampering the United States' ability to defend itself from attacks from Iran-based militias in Iraq. There will be amendments that I think will, could well be friendly amendments, amendments we could agree on in that space. Second, there are almost always, when we take this up, amendments that are more about stating the president has Article II power to do the following. If we're going to assert a legislative power to repeal an authorization, some want to try to define 
Article II power. Now, we can't add to or subtract from Article II power in a resolution or statute. It's in the Constitution. And there are some debates about exactly how to phrase Article II power, but you may see some amendments on that topic next week. We do believe, though, that we'll get to the end of the amendment process. Senator Young and I have agreed to some, you know, we'll probably try to defeat some if they're bad, allow some if they're fine. Some may not be germane, um, and, and they will get dealt with in either a tabling motion or, or a motion to defeat them. But we think we'll get to the end of next week some amendments may be accepted. We'll get this thing passed with right at 70 votes. Our, the, our goal then is to go to the House. The House has voted on this already a couple of times with every Democrat and up to 40 Republicans voting to repeal the authorizations, usually as an amendment vote to the House defense bill on the floor of the House. We would like to get the House to take this up as a standalone, not just an amendment on the defense bill. So we've gotten really good House bipartisan support. Barbara Lee and Abigail Spanberger are the two Democratic leads. Chip Roy and Tom Cole are the two Republican leads. They're both very close to Speaker McCarthy. And I, I, I would assert to Speaker McCarthy, you are the most important legislator. You're number three in, in presidential succession, President, VP, Speaker. This is a bill that's ultimately about reclaiming Article I powers that have been abdicated to the Article II branch. So this would be a good thing for a Speaker to do. Now, whether or not he will vote for it or not, maybe he'll see the merits of a, of a assertion of legislative prerogatives and, and agree with us that taking this up coincident with the 20th anniversary is a good idea. Um, last thing I'll say is President Biden put, put out a statement today that was a, a restatement of what he had done when we took this bill up in the 117th Congress, saying, I will support this bill. If it comes to my desk, I'll sign it. And the wording of it was interesting. He, he talked about... Uh, we need to repeal this because Iraq is a security partner now, not an enemy. But he also said there's other war authorizations on the books, 2001. He didn't mention it by name, but he talked about war authorizations to deal with non-state terrorism threats. And he said, we look forward to working with Congress to take those to that authorization, which is still necessary because non-state terrorist organizations still pose a threat. But after 20-plus years, it needs some revision and shaping, and he pledged to work together with Congress to do that. So we'll take about, and when this bill passes out of the House, God willing, Todd and I will take one day off. Then we're going to start working on 9-11 revisions and rewrites, and I bet Cato and, and Cato's friends will have ideas on that, too. Look forward to working together. Thank you. Well, all right. Well, thank you for that, <clears throat> Senator. I've noticed you didn't use any notes, so you've got that stump speech pretty much all worked out. Uh, a couple of questions real quick, and for those online, submit some questions. I have an iPad here so I can use some of them, uh, and of course, we'll come to you in the audience momentarily, but let me get some reportery questions out of the way, if you don't mind, uh, before going to you intellectuals in the audience. So first, to be clear, you're saying that the final vote in the Senate is probably going to get no fewer than 70 votes to pass. That's what seems to be in implying. I, we, ha we have 70. The question is, will we have everyone there? So if everyone's there, we have 70. Sometimes you have absences. Um, and the only other thing that could potentially move it one way or the other is how people feel about amendment processes. So could some of the no votes today get an amendment that they like and with an amendment they'd be willing to vote and we would add to our total? Could somebody be mad that 
they wanted to do this because they had an amendment to get offered and they offer their amendment and it doesn't pass and they're mad and so they vote no. You could see it slide a little bit north or a little bit south depending upon the amendment process, but we should be right about 70. But it's going to pass. If that, okay. Yes, okay. it will pass. It's going to pass. Uh, what do you think this bill might look like at the end of the amendments? portion. Yeah, I, I think, again, the, the two kinds of amendments that I can foresee, and this is based upon earlier floor votes. Uh, we had a, a floor vote surrounding the Soleimani strike where there were seven amendments offered. And then we have done this bill twice in committee where colleagues have offered amendments. So I'm kind of looking at the types of amendments. The, the, two ten, the, the two most common would be amendments dealing with Iran and sometimes they hardly deal with Iraq at all. They're just about Iran, and let's bootstrap Iran into this Iraq AUMF. Or more specifically, um, the activities of Iran-backed militias in Iraq. Um, we're getting struck, U.S. positions in Syria and Iraq are getting attacked by Iran-backed militias constantly. And we do a very good job defending against those attacks in tandem with the Syrian Defense Forces or the Iraqi military. But you're probably going to see some Iran-related amendments. That's one bucket. Um, and then the other bucket, again, is this. Uh, th there are some differences of opinion among scholars and also among senators about the extent of president's unilateral Article II power. So you know the, the way it was set up is uh, a president, uh, as commander in chief, has the ability to defend the United States against attack or imminent attack. Imminent attack is somewhat of a subjective term, but the sort of tie goes to the executive on that. If the executive says it's an imminent attack, he, doesn't ask, he or she doesn't have to ask permission of Congress to defend the U.S. There are some who assert that that power is broader, that the Article II power gives the commander-in-chief the ability not just to defend against an attack, not just defend against an imminent attack, but also to take action to protect America's national interests. Well, that's such a plastic term, it has no limit. No president would ever say, I'm going to war. Um, now, it doesn't affect our national interest, but I'm just going to war. No, if, if national interest is the magic word, that just allows too much unilateral executive action. So there could be some amendments about trying to say the president would have the ability to do X or Y. In the past, sometimes those are innocuous and they're accurately stated. Sometimes they've been stated way too broadly and we've moved to defeat those amendments. And if I read your, or listen to your statements correctly about the House and Kevin McCarthy, it sounds like you're a little nervous it might not pass the House. It, um, Kevin McCarthy has promised an open amendment process. So I feel very comfortable that as part of the defense bill, when the defense bill gets on the floor, we know what the vote will be on this because they've already voted on it. And they would add this to their defense bill. And in conference, we would agree on it because the Senate would have already acted. I would rather we not wait for the defense bill. That's a few months down the road. And with, that we take it up unilaterally as a standalone because it's such an important issue. So we, we know we have the votes, but the speaker does ultimately have an awful lot of control about what gets a vote on the floor. Um, and we're going to try to do what we can uh, to encourage that this to get an up or down vote. But you're not worried about any poison pill amendments, perhaps, in the House? There, there, no. I, just based upon how this has shaken out in the past when there have been House votes, I think that uh, we, we have a very strong position in the House. So it's going to pass the House? Well, that I think the answer is yes, but when. So will it pass on its own, or will it pass as an amendment to the defense bill some months down the road? That's the question right now. So you'll arrive at the destination. The, the, the method is different. It right. Could change. It, okay. it could be different. Okay. Right. Well, let's quickly go to the audience here for some questions. Uh, let's see. This gentleman over here. 
Hey, thank you. Josh Schifferson, University of Maryland. Hey, Josh. Wants to do it. Hi, Senator. Quick, quick, maybe two-part question. Yep. Um, you're describing the Senate and to a broader extent the Congress kind of reasserting its powers over war and peace. So my question to you is, what's your sense of why the Congress and the Senate has abdicated or re refused this role to this point? And second, what future-oriented reforms would you like to see? What would get the Senate to play this role on a more regular basis going forward? Why has Congress abdicated the role? Um, Congress has abdicated this role since the very start of the nation. So um, Madison wrote the Constitution together with others, but also wrote the, the diary of the Constitutional Convention, kind of explaining what they were doing. And then he had a famous exchange of correspondence with uh, Jefferson years later, and they were talking about this part of the Constitution. The Constitution is filled with phrases that are super specific. You gotta be 35 years old to be president. Super vague, you're entitled to due process. The war powers are among the more specific side rather than the, among the more vague side. And Madison wrote a letter to Jefferson and he said, our Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that it is the executive most prone to war and the executive most likely to initiate war. Therefore, we have, with studied care, vested the question of war with the legislative branch. So that was their intention. But from the very beginning, what Congress showed was Madison was smart about the executive he, he accurately assessed an executive uh, virus, but he underestimated a co Congress's willingness to abdicate tough questions. So war, the war, war votes are the toughest you'll ever cast. I mean, I've had to cast them when I had a kid in the Marine Corps, and they, it's not like a zoning case before the Richmond City Council. You know, any war vote is a very, very tough vote. And so members of Congress are like, well, look, if we can just say, yeah, the president, you know, you start, and then if we like it we'll, and it goes well, we're with you. And if it goes badly, how dare you? And so Congress has ducked this under Whigs and Federalists and Democrats and Republicans. Now, it, it, Congress did act on both the 2001, the aftermath of 9-11, voted for a, a hastily worded, uh, imprecise authorization. And then a year later, uh, with respect to Iraq. So that wasn't an abdication. Congress voted. But then the, the questions of oversight and, and trying to hone it in and declare the war over Congress has kind of backed off it. And I just think it's politically hard. So I think it's just easier to let the president do it and thereby think you can escape accountability. But if we're forcing men and women to risk their lives, like how dare we say, well, this could be unpopular. I don't, I don't want to do it. What has now gotten us to a place where Congress seems willing to act? I think it, it has been 20 years of pain and lessons learned, and you're talking about those lessons in the panels today, and those, those have been felt by members of Congress, too. Um, I do think the, the, the Trump strike on Soleimani was pivotal because while people supported the strike and could have said, yeah, Article Two powers, we get it, and 2001 authorization, we get it, the assertion that this was justified by the Iraq authorization made people feel like, well, wait a minute, that wasn't what it was about at all. Yeah, these zombie authorizations just sitting on the books are capable of abuse. And the last thing I'll say, one of the reasons we're here, is Biden. Biden is not hostile to the notion of an Article I branch being an Article I branch. When I worked on this under the Obama administration, they weren't hostile, but they weren't helpful. It was kind of like, well, if you guys figure it out, yeah, come talk to us. The Trump administration was hostile to the idea of repealing AUMFs. And so if you have the White House leaning in and saying, we're going to veto it and we're not going to do it, then people 
don't pay, they, they do work on other things. Biden was a 36-year member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He wants to be Article II president to the last square centimeter of that power, but he's not threatened by members of Congress asserting Article I powers. Well, I think we could ask you a lot more questions, but I'll, uh, I'll finish with this last one since you have to go in 30 seconds, which is, uh, would you support a war authorization against Furman after they're beating UVA today? Ooh, it's, it's, uh, you, you would need a very uh, reasonable people to check my aggressive and bellicose <laughs> instincts. Um, I just want to do say one thing. I have J.C. Jane here. J.C. is my senior foreign policy guy. He was a career foreign service officer who did a Hill Fellowship with me, went back to the State Department and the, and the National Security Council, and then has rejoined my team to lead my foreign policy effort. And if you ever want anybody to, to run a whipping operation, this guy is fantastic. One of the reasons that we got 68 votes today up to 70, clearly Todd Young's success in getting Republicans has been key. But JC has done a masterful job, and I just want to acknowledge that. Well, you, well, you just assured that uh, he's going to get swamped after the meeting. Uh, well, thank you, Senator. I, I know Justin's going to uh, wave us off here. But yeah, for Presbyter here, Senator Kane has graciously uh, agreed to do a, a short 10 or 15-minute press gaggle uh, outside. Um, and for the rest of us, we have beer and wine outside. So that's uh, all almost as good as being able to ask another question. Thank you very much for your attention, for your attendance today, and uh, have a good rest of your evening. Thank you.